Chapter Number Nine of the Turmoil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Burchard, April two thousand nine. The Turmoil, Volume One of the Growth Trilogy, by Booth Tarkington, Chapter Nine. Through the open country, Bibbs was born flying between brown fields and sun-flecked groves of gray trees, to breathe in the rushing, clean air beneath a glorious sky, that sky so despised in the city, and so maltreated there, that from early October to mid-May it was impossible for men to remember that blue is the rightful color overhead. Upon each of Bibbs's cheeks there was a hint of something almost resembling a pinkishness, not actual color, but undeniably its phantom. How largely this apparition may have been the work of the wind upon his face it is difficult to calculate, for beyond a doubt it was partly the result of a lady's bowing to him upon no more formal introduction than the circumstances of his having caught her looking into his window a month before. She had bowed definitely, she had bowed charmingly, and it seemed to Bibbs that she must have meant to convey her forgiveness. There had been something in her recognition of him unfamiliar to his experience, and he rode the warmer for it nor did he lack the impression that he would long remember her as he had just seen her, her veil tumultuously blowing back, her face glowing in the wind, and that look of gay friendliness tossed to him like a fresh rose in carnival. By and by, upon a rising ground, the driver halted the car, then backed and tacked and sent it forward again with its nose to the south and the smoke. Far before him, Bibbs saw the great smudge upon the horizon, that nest of cloud in which the city strove and panted like an engine shrouded in its own steam. But to Bibbs, who had now to go to the very heart of it, for a commanded interview with his father, the distant cloud was like an implacable genius issuing thunderously in smoke from his enchanted bottle, and irresistibly drawing Bibbs nearer and nearer. They passed from the farmlands and came, in the amber light of November late afternoon, to the farthermost outskirts of the city and here the sky shimmered upon the verge of change from blue to gray. The smoke did not visibly permeate the air, but it was there nevertheless, impalpable, thin, no more than the dust of smoke. And then, as the car drove on, the chimneys and stacks of factories came swimming up into view like miles of steamers advancing abreast, every funnel with its vast plume, savage and black, sweeping to the horizon, dripping wealth and dirt and suffocation over league on league already rich and vile with grime. The sky had become only a dingy thickening of the soiled air, and a roar and clangor of metals beat deafeningly on Bibbs's ears. And now the car passed two great blocks of long brick buildings, hideous in all ways possible to make them hideous, doorways showing dark one moment and lurid the next with the leap of some virulent interior flame, revealing blackened giants, half-naked, in passionate action, struggling with formless things in the hot illumination. And big as these shops were, they were growing bigger, spreading over a third block, where two new structures were mushrooming to completion in some hasty cement process of a stability not over-reassuring. Bibbs pulled the rug closer about him, and not even the phantom of color was left upon his cheeks as he passed this place, for he knew it too well. Across the face of one of the buildings there was an enormous sign, Sheridan Automatic Pump Company, Incorporated. Thence they went through streets of wooden houses, all grimed, and adding their own grime from many a sooty chimney, 
flimsy wooden houses of a thousand flimsy whimsies in the fashioning, built on narrow lots and nudging one another crossly, shutting out the stingy sunlight from one another, bad neighbors who would destroy one another root and branch some night when the right wind blew. They were only waiting for that wind and a cigarette, and then they would all be gone together. A pinch of incense burned upon the tripod of the god. Along these streets there were skinny shade trees, and here and there a forest elm or walnut had been left, but these were dying. Some people said it was the scale, some said it was the smoke, and some were sure that asphalt and improving the streets did it. But Bigness was in too big a hurry to bother much about trees. He had telegraph poles and telephone poles and electric light poles and trolley poles by the thousands to take their places. So he let the trees die and put up his poles. They were hideous, but nobody minded that, and sometimes the wires fell and killed people, but not often enough to matter at all. Thence onward the car bore bibs through the older parts of the town where the few solid old houses not already demolished were in transition. Some, with their fronts torn away, were being made into segments of apartment buildings. Others had gone uproariously into trade, brazenly putting forth show windows on their first floors. Seeming to mean it for a joke, one or two with unaltered facades peeped humorously over the tops of temporary office buildings of one story erected in the old front yards. Altogether, the town here was like a boarding-house hash the Sunday after Thanksgiving. The old ingredients were discernible. This was the fringe of Bigness's own sanctuary, and now Bibbs reached the roaring Holy of Holies itself. The car must stop at every crossing while the dark-garbed crowds, enveloped in maelstroms of dust, hurried before it. Magnificent new buildings, already dingy, loomed hundreds of feet above him, Nearer ones, more magnificent, were rising behind them, rising higher. Old buildings were coming down. Middle-aged buildings were coming down. The streets were laid open to their entrails, and men worked underground between palisades, and overhead in metal cobwebs like spiders in the sky. Trolley cars and long interurban cars, built to split the wind-like torpedo boats, clanged and shrieked their way round swarming corners. Motor-cars of every kind and shape known to man babbled frightful warnings and frantic demands. Hospital ambulances clamored wildly for passage. Steam-whistles signaled the swinging of titanic tentacle and claw. Riveters rattled like machine-guns. The ground shook to the thunder of gigantic trucks. And the conglomerate sound of it all was the sound of earthquake playing accompaniments for battle and sudden death. On one of the new steel buildings no work was being done that afternoon. The building had killed a man in the morning, and the steel workers always stop for the day when that happens. And in the hurrying crowds, swirling and sifting through the Brobdingnagian camp of iron and steel, one saw the camp followers and the pagan women. There would be work today and dancing tonight, for the Puritan's dry voice is but the crackling of a leaf underfoot in the rush and roar of the coming of the new Egypt. Bibbs was on time. He knew it must be to the minute, or his father would consider it an outrage and the big chronometer in Sheridan's office marked four precisely when Bibbs walked in. Coincidentally, with his entrance, five people who had been at work in the office, under Sheridan's direction, walked out. They departed upon no visible or audible suggestion, and with a promptness that seemed ominous to the newcomer. As the massive door clicked softly behind the elderly stenographer, the last of the procession, Bibbs had a feeling that they all understood that he was a failure as a great man's son. A disappointment the queer one of the family, and that he had been summoned to judgment, a well-founded impression, for that was exactly what they understood. "'Sit down,' said Sheridan. 
It is frequently an advantage for deans, schoolmasters, and worried fathers to place delinquents in the sitting posture. Bibbs sat. Sheridan, standing, gazed enigmatically upon his son for a period of silence, then walked slowly to a window and stood looking out of it, his big hands loosely hooked together by the thumbs behind his back. They were soiled, as were all other hands downtown, except such as might be still damp from a basin. "'Well, Bibbs,' he said at last, not altering his attitude, "'do you know what I'm going to do with you?' Bibbs, leaning back in his chair, fixed his eyes contemplatively upon the ceiling. "'I heard you tell Jim,' he began in his slow way. "'You said you'd send him to the machine shop with me "'if he didn't propose to Miss Vertrees. "'So I suppose that must be your plan for me, but—' "'But what?' said Sheridan irritably, as the sun paused. "'Isn't there somebody you'd let me propose to?' That brought his father sharply round to face him. "'You beat the devil, Bibbs! What is the matter with you? Why can't you be like anybody else?' "'Liver, maybe,' said Bibbs gently. "'Bah! Even old Doc Gurney says there's nothing wrong with you organically. No, you're a dreamer, Bibbs. That's what's the matter. And that's all the matter. Oh, not one of those big dreamers that put through their big deals. No, sir.' You're the kind of dreamer that just sets out on the back fence and thinks about how much trouble there must be in the world. That ain't the kind that builds the bridges, Bibbs. It's the kind that borrows fifteen cents from his wife's uncle's brother-in-law to get ten cents worth of plug tobacco and a nickel's worth of quinine. He put the finishing touch on this etching with a snort, and turned again to the window. Look out there, he bade his son. Look out of that window. Look at the life and energy down there. I should think any young man's blood would tingle to get into it and be part of it. Look at the big things young men are doing in this town. He swung about, coming to the mahogany desk in the middle of the room. Look at what I was doing at your age. Look at what your own brothers are doing. Look at Roscoe. Yes, and look at Jim. I made Jim president of the Sheridan Realty Company last New Year's, with charge of every inch of ground and every brick and every shingle and stick of wood we own. And it's an example to any young man, or old man either, the way he took a hold of it. Last July, we found out we wanted two more big warehouses at the pump works. Wanted them quick. Contractors said it couldn't be done. Said nine or ten months at the soonest. Couldn't see it any other way. What did Jim do? Took the contract himself. Found a fellow with a new cement and concrete process. Kept men on the job night and day, and stayed on it night and day himself. And by George, we begin to use them warehouses next week. Four months and a half, and every inch fireproof. I tell you, Jim's one of these fellers that make miracles happen. Now, I don't say every young man can be like Jim, because there's mighty few got his ability. But every young man can go in and do his share. This town is God's own country, and there's opportunity for anybody with a pound of energy and an ounce of gumption. I tell you, these young businessmen I watch just do my heart good. They don't set around on the back fence, no, sir. They take enough exercise to keep their health, and they go to a baseball game once or twice a week in summer, maybe, and they're raising nice families with sons to take their places sometime and carry on the work, because the work's got to go on. They're putting their lifeblood into it, I tell you, and that's why we're getting bigger every minute, and why they're getting bigger, and why it's all going to keep on getting bigger. He slapped the desk resoundingly with his open palm, and then observing that Bibbs remained in the same impassive attitude, with his eyes still fixed upon the ceiling, in a contemplation somewhat plaintive, Sheridan was impelled to groan. "'Oh, Lord!' he said. 
This is the way you always were. I don't believe you understood a darn word I've been saying. You don't look as if you did. By George, it's discouraging. I don't understand about getting about getting bigger, said Bibbs, bringing his gaze down to look at his father placatively. I don't see just what. What? Sheridan leaned forward, resting his hands upon the desk and staring across it incredulously at his son. I don't understand exactly what you want it all bigger for. Great God! shouted Sheridan, and struck the desk a blow with his clenched fist. A son of mine asks me that. You go out and ask the poorest day laborer you can find. Ask him that question. I did once, Bibbs interrupted, when I was in the machine shop. I, what did he say? He said, Oh, hell, answered Bibbs mildly. Yes, I reckon he would. Sheridan swung away from the desk. I reckon he certainly would, and I got plenty sympathy with him right now myself. It's the same answer, then. Bibbs' voice was serious, almost tremulous. Damnation! Sheridan roared. Did you ever hear the word prosperity, you ninny? Did you ever hear the word ambition? Did you ever hear the word progress? He flung himself into a chair after the outburst, his big chest surging, his throat tumultuous with guttural incoherences. Now then, he said huskily, when the anguish had somewhat abated, what do you want to do? Sir, what do you want to do, I said. Taken by surprise, Bibb stammered. What? What do I want? What? If I'd let you do exactly what you had the whim for, what would you do? Bibbs looked startled. Then timidity overwhelmed him, a profound shyness. He bent his head and fixed his lowered eyes upon the toe of his shoe, which he moved to and fro upon the rug, like a culprit called to the desk in school. What would you do? Loaf? No, sir. Bibbs' voice was almost inaudible, and what little sound it made was unquestionably a guilty sound. I suppose I'd... I'd... Well? I suppose I'd try to... to write. Write what? Nothing important. Just poems and essays, perhaps. That all? Yes, sir. I see, said his father, breathing quickly with the restraint he was putting upon himself. That is... You want to write, but you don't want to write anything of any account. You think Sheridan got up again. I take my hat off to the man that can write a good ad, he said emphatically. The best writing talent in this country is right spang in the ad business today. You buy a magazine for good writing, look on the back of it. Let me tell you I pay money for that kind of writing. Maybe you think it's easy. Just try it. I've tried it, and I can't do it. I tell you an ad's got to be written so it makes people do the hardest thing in the world to get em to do. It's got to make em give up their money. You talk about poems and essays? I tell you when it comes to the actual skill of putting words together so as to make things happen, R.T. Bloss, right here in this city, knows more in a minute than George Waldo Emerson ever knew in his whole life. You... you may be... Bibbs said indistinctly, the last word smothered in a cough. Of course I'm right, and if it ain't just like you to want to take up with the most out-of-date kind of writing there is, poems and essays, my lord, Bibbs, that's women's work. You can't pick up a newspaper without having to see where Mrs. Rumskittle read a paper on Jane Eyre or East Lynn at the God-knows-what club, and poetry. Why, look at Edith. I expect that poem of hers would set a pretty high watermark for you, young man, and it's the only one she's ever managed to write in her whole life.' 
When I wanted her to go on and write some more, she said it took too much time. Said it took months and months. And Edith's a smart girl. She's got more energy in her little finger than you ever gave me a chance to see in your whole body, Bibbs. Now look at the facts. Say she could turn out four or five poems a year, and you could turn out maybe two. That medal she got was worth about fifteen dollars, so there's your income. Thirty dollars a year. That's a fine success to make of your life. I'm not saying a word against poetry. I wouldn't take ten thousand dollars right now for that poem of Edith's, and poetry's all right enough in its place. But you leave it to the girls. A man's got to do a man's work in this world. He seated himself in a chair at his son's side and, leaning over, tapped Bibbs confidentially on the knee. This city's got the greatest future in America, and if my sons behave right by me and by themselves, they're going to have a mighty fair share of it. A mighty fair share. I love this town. It's God's own footstool, and it's made money for me every day right along I don't know how many years. I love it like I do my own business, and I'd fight for it as quick as I'd fight for my own family. It's a beautiful town. Look at our wholesale district. Look at any district we want to. Look at the park system we're putting through, and the boulevards, and the public statuary. And she grows. God, how she grows! He had become intensely grave. He spoke with solemnity. Now, Bibbs, I can't take any of it, nor any gold or silver, nor buildings, nor bonds, away with me in my shroud when I have to go. But I want to leave my share in it to my boys. I've worked for it. I've been a builder and a maker, and two blades of grass have grown where one grew before, whenever I laid my hand on the ground and willed em to grow. I've built big, and I want the building to go on. And when my last hour comes, I want to know that my boys are ready to take charge, that they're fit to take charge and go on with it. Bibbs, when that hour comes, I want to know that my boys are big men, ready and fit to hold of big things. Bibbs, when I'm up above, I want to know that the big share I've made mine here below is growing bigger and bigger in the charge of my boys. He leaned back, deeply moved. There, he said huskily, I've never spoken more what was in my heart in my life. I do it because I want you to understand, and not think me a mean father. I never had to talk that way to Jim and Roscoe. They understood without any talk, Bibbs. I see, said Bibbs. At least I think I do. But wait a minute, Sheridan raised his hand. If you see the least bit in the world, then you understand how it feels to me to have my son set here and talk about poems and essays and such like fooleries. And you must understand, too, what it meant to start one of my boys and have him come back on me the way you did, and have to be sent to a sanitarium because he couldn't stand work. Now let's get right down to it, Bibbs. I've had a whole lot of talk with old Doc Gurney about you one time or another, and I reckon I understand your case just about as well as he does anyway. Now here, I'll be frank with you. I started you in harder than what I did the other boys, and that was for your own good, because I saw you needed to be shook up more than they did. You were always kind of moody and mopish, and you needed work that'd keep you on the jump. Now why did it make you sick instead of brace you up and make a man of you the way it ought have done? I pinned old Gurney down to it. I says, look here, ain't it really because he's just plain hated it? Yes, he says, that's it. If he'd enjoyed it, it wouldn't have hurt him. He loathes it, and that affects his nervous system. The more he tries it, the more he hates it. And the more he hates it, the more injury it does him. That ain't quite his words, but it's what he meant. And that's about the way it is. Yes, said Bibbs, that's about the way it is. Well, then, I reckon it's up to me not only to make you do it, but to make you like it. Bibbs shivered. 
and he turned upon his father a look that was almost ghostly. "'I can't,' he said in a low voice. "'I can't.' "'Can't go back to the shop?' "'No. Can't like it. I can't.' Sheridan jumped up, his patience gone. To his own view, he had reasoned exhaustively, had explained fully, and had pleaded more than a father should, only to be met in the end with the unreasoning and mysterious stubbornness which had been Bibbs's baffling characteristic from childhood. "'By George, you will!' he cried. "'You'll go back there, and you'll like it. Gurney says it won't hurt you if you like it, and he says it'll kill you if you go back and hate it. So it looks as if it was about up to you not to hate it. Well, Gurney's a fool. Hatin' work doesn't kill anybody, and this isn't going to kill you whether you hate it or not. I've never made a mistake in a serious matter in my life, and it wasn't a mistake by sending you there in the first place, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to send you back there and vindicate my judgment. Gurney says it's all mental attitude. Well, you're going to learn the right one. He says in a couple more months this fool thing that's been the matter with you will be disappeared completely, and you'll be back in as good or better condition than you were before you ever went into the shop. And right then is when you begin over, right in that same shop. Nobody can call me a hard man or a mean father. I do the best I can for my children, and I take full responsibility for bringing my sons up to be men. Now, so far I've failed with you, but I'm not going to keep on failing. I never tackled a job yet I didn't put through, and I'm not going to begin with my own son. I'm going to make a man of you. By God, I am! Bibbs rose and went slowly to the door, where he turned. You say you give me a couple of months, he said. Sheridan pushed a bell button on his desk. Gurney said two months more would put you back where you were. You go home and begin to get yourself in the right mental attitude before those two months are up. Goodbye. Goodbye, sir, said Bibbs meekly. End of chapter 9. Recording by Jonathan Burchard. April 2009.